0: Here at Crepuscular Academy, the work of the week is done. The classrooms are dark and empty and mostly silent. The more dangerous textbooks have been locked away. So why don't you join us in my study, as we delve once more into Dr. Longshadow's miscellany of the uncanny. Good evening. My name is Dr. James Archipelago Longshadow. To begin, an apology. It has been some time since I was able to share one of my tales with you. Allow me to explain this unfortunate but unavoidable absence. In a word, penguins. I will elucidate. The summer months here at Crepuscular Academy are invariably hot, much warmer than the more temperate regions that surround our grounds. The reason for this thermal anomaly has never been satisfactorily explained. There are theories, such as the Academy's proximity to certain dimensional hinterlands. However, the result is that it can be uncomfortably warm. Or at least, that was the case. This year, the Physics Club, in tandem with the Upper Six Geography Society, devised a means by which a stable portal could be established to the Antarctic regions. Their prime objective was to further exploration of the region. However, the portal proved unsuitable for such endeavors, as, whilst allowing movement from the pole to the basement area where they had set up their equipment, transport in the other direction, i.e. from the academy to the chilly south, was not possible. It was at this stage that Professor Brunel, our engineering specialist, having heard about the endeavours of the students, hit upon the idea of using the portal as a means of air conditioning. Much wily plumbing ensued, and before we knew it the academy was being treated to cool, soothing breezes that made life "'much more pleasant.' "'The first penguin was found several days later. "'Dr. Backman, head of ancient and obscure languages, "'was just about to partake of an early evening bath "'when he discovered a small but happy penguin "'swimming up and down in his tub. "'It soon became clear that a colony of the feathered fellows "'had stumbled upon the Antarctic end of the portal "'and had been merrily infesting the academy.' Perhaps they had sensed for slightly kinder conditions on our side and had hopped over for a warm-up. Quid pro quo, as it were. The monochrome chaps were, it must be said, delightful company. However, the Academy is no place for polar fauna, as the polar bear attack of 1879 proved. And so it was decided to repatriate the penguins as soon as possible. As it was impossible for us to return them to their natural climes via the portal, it was decided that they should be returned by ship. And so, the Geography Society got to slake their appetite for exploration, and I got to fulfil a long-held ambition to visit our southernmost continent, where I studied the ancient ice, surveyed a strangely geometric mountain, and visited my great-grandmother's last resting place. All in all, it has been an eventful few weeks. However, now we are all returned. It is time once again to share with you a tale from the miscellany of the uncanny. When Anne's parents had told her that they were going to be holidaying in a cottage on an island off the west coast of Scotland... Her first response had naturally been to inquire about A. The Wi-Fi and B. The mobile signal and C. If there were neither of these, why were they dragging her off to the edge of the world away from every basic need of every human? She had then threatened to call various child protection agencies, the police and even the UN before marching upstairs and slamming her bedroom door. The time for the holiday had come around, and she had sulked on the long car journey north. She had pouted on the ferry from the mainland, and had sat silently, contemplating the logistics of putting herself up for adoption on the drive along the narrow roads that wound from the port through the heart of the island to where they would be staying. However... As her father carefully navigated the roads, pulling over to let the occasional camper van and tractor coming from the opposite direction pass, a strange thing began to happen. The island began to win Anne over. It was the sky that first started to winkle her out of her shell of misery. It was just so very big. She had always lived in a city, And for as long as she could remember, the sky had been fringed and boxed in by roofs, unused chimneys, television aerials. But the sky over this island was immense. It reached far above and around them as they drove. It was a sunny day, and as she looked up she could imagine that she was floating above the surface of an ocean dotted with small white islands. Anne started to feel dizzy with the thought of falling up into the mirror world, so she tried keeping her eyes on the land around her instead. The landscape was a patchwork of storybook pictures and film settings. There were forests full of towering firs that grew so closely together that any wolf or witch might have been lurking just on the edges and still have been completely hidden. There were gentler woods that were home to trees that she thought must be older than history and full of fairies. They drove past lochs, still and mirrored, and valleys full of grass that was a rich green colour that she had never seen before. And then there were the cows. Actual Highland cows. She had only ever seen pictures of them before, on toffee wrappers or shortbread tins, and now here they were and she loved them. They were huge and hairy and beautiful. By the time the car pulled up next to the little white cottage Anne had forgotten her woes and worries about being cut off from the so-called civilized world and couldn't wait to explore. And explore she did. Her parents couldn't quite believe that this was their daughter. They never stopped being amazed when, all through the week, Anne would gobble down her breakfast, grab a packed lunch and set off to explore for the day. Previously she had rarely been seen outside of her bedroom. They never questioned her too closely on where she went when she disappeared. They reasoned correctly that in all the world this island was possibly one of the safest places they could have come to. Also they worried if they said anything out of turn and the fragile spell that the island had cast would be broken. This was how Anne found the boat. The day before the family were due to return home, she decided to go beachcombing. There were many beaches on the island, beautiful, curving arcs of white sand that wouldn't have looked out of place in the Pacific. But Anne preferred the rocky, ragged coastline that the cottage sat on. She spent many happy hours exploring the nooks and cuts that the sea had spent aeons carving. She would wander happily along the coast, sometimes heading in to explore a wood or a valley, but mostly clambering over rocks and collecting shells and pebbles that caught her eye. She liked to find a sheltered cove or natural seat in the rocks and sit there watching the ocean. Her father had explained to her that there was nothing between them and America, nothing except the deep Atlantic. Indeed, when Anne sat and watched the wave, she sometimes felt that the ocean, with all of its unknowable secrets, all its dark vastness, had suddenly turned its attention on her and her alone. Anne wanted to make the most of the last day, so she pressed on, determined to go further and explore as much as she could. She had been walking for an hour or so when she was forced by vertical rocks to head inland she came to a field of unkempt grass that had obviously not been visited by the island's cows or sheep. She started walking across, picking her way between some of the boggier parts, when the air was suddenly filled with the sound of flapping flags as a flock of geese that up until then had been hidden by grass angrily took to the air, honking their disapproval as they flew away. Anne laughed and shouted an apology after them. She carried on across the field, until she came to the edge and found the shoreline again. The beach was below the level of the field by about three feet, but even so, when she saw the boat, her first thought was she couldn't believe that something so big could have been hidden so completely. And yet, she had not seen it, not until she was standing on the border between field and shore. It was a sailing boat, or more precisely, the front half of a sailing boat. Almost half of it was missing, and what was left looked like it had been torn apart by a sea monster. The paint had long since been eroded, and the timber shone bone-white in the bright sunlight. It was sitting upright on the rocks as if it had been running to safety when disaster had struck. Its mast lay some distance away, metal pulleys and fixings rusted red. Slowly, Anne walked towards the wreck. She hesitated for a moment and then reached out a hand to touch it. For some reason, she had expected it to move, but the boat sat solidly. Suddenly aware of how far she was from the cottage, and how alone she was, she considered walking away. Despite her best efforts, she was already beginning to imagine what might be lurking in the ship's interior. But this was an adventure and she knew that if she didn't investigate the wreck, she would regret it. Slowly, she walked to where the ship had been torn open and looked inside. There was nothing. The boat was an empty shell, although she was pleased to note that a bird had constructed a small nest in the roof. She was about to leave then, only partly despondent by finding nothing, when she saw a glint of light. Along what was left of the side of the boat were regularly placed round circles, no bigger than her hand, where she supposed its windows, uh portholes, she remembered from a film about unconvincing pirates, had gone. But one of the circles wasn't empty. In the hole, furthest away from the torn opening, was an intact window. The glass was clear, and the metal surrounding it had somehow managed to escape the fate of the rest of the metal left on the ship, and still shone bright and silver. To inspect the port homo closely would mean getting into the boat. It was only a matter of a few feet, but still she paused. It would be a great souvenir, she thought. Anne took a deep breath and stepped into the boat. She stood still and listened for creaks, but the boat was rock steady. The floor felt solid enough, so she took another step, and and another, until she was at the porthole. She could see the beach and the sea beyond glittering and blue. Tentatively, she reached out and put her fingers around the metal and gave the gentlest of tugs. As she failed to give, she gave half a thought to the idea that perhaps this wasn't the right thing to do. Was it stealing? No, she thought. She began pulling harder. If someone had wanted this, they would have taken it a long time ago. Anyway, she was doing the boat a favour. If she left it here, surely it would only be a matter of time before the seas and the winds claimed this last surviving piece. This way the boat, or at least a part of it, would live on forever. She pulled harder, and the porthole came away. Anne tucked her treasure in her backpack and started a journey back to the cottage. As she retraced her steps, the sun was hidden behind gathering clouds, and the air grew colder. When the family finally got home after a long journey, Anne's parents were more than a little dismayed by how quickly she ran upstairs to gulp down the internet like a desert explorer at an oasis. Oh well, they thought. At least she managed a week away from it all. After catching up with all of her friends, some of whom she had actually met in person, and binging on videos to ensure that she was completely up to date with what was cool, she lay back in her bed and took a long, satisfying, relieved breath. That was when she remembered her treasures from the weeks exploring she opened her backpack and began to lay them out on her bed. The treasures were mostly made up of rocks that Anne had decided were in some way worthy of keeping. Some, for example, were beautifully smooth and felt as if they were still wet. Others had splinters of crystal in them, and one looked impressively like a shark's tooth. She also had some small, twisted pieces of driftwood and smoky blue sea glass. Finally, her hands felt the smooth, cold metal of the porthole and she pulled it out. She hadn't taken it out of the bag since she'd found it. She had wanted to, but found that it wasn't until they were a fair few hundred miles between her and the island that she had felt in any way comfortable doing so. It was just as clear and shiny as it had been on the beach that last day. She ran her fingers over the glass and held it up to her face. Was it her imagination? Or could she catch just the faintest smell of the sea? Anne looked out of her bedroom window and was suddenly filled with a great sadness as she remembered the blue sky arching over the sweeping land of the island. She had never noticed before just how very grey her hometown was. Grey roads, grey buildings, grey sky. She looked through the porthole just once, and then carefully placed it on her windowsill, arranging it in the middle of all her other treasures. Anne wasn't sure why she woke when she did. It was still dark outside, but there was a light in the room. Sleepily, she thought it must be her phone, but who would be sending a message at this time of night? It took her a few moments to come round enough to realise that the soft glow in the room wasn't coming from the bedside table where she had left her phone. It was coming from the window sill. She got out of bed and padded across the room to her treasures, and there, amongst the rocks and driftwood and sea glass, was the porthole. Anne's breath caught in her chest as she looked at the small circle of glass. She slept in the attic room of her house, and had never felt the need to close the curtains for privacy. Through her window, it was deepest night. A starless, cloudy sky loomed over the black silhouettes of the rooftops, with only the occasional glimpse of light punctuating the dark. However, when she looked through the porthole, Anne could see the ocean. Bright and blue, glittering with sun the scene moved gently up and down as it would have done as if she was on a boat. No one really knows how they would react when coming face to face with such a situation. There is precious enough magic left in the world and it is sad but true to realize that for most people the question of what to do when finding some magic is a moot point. Anne reacted by dropping the porthole and jumping back into bed and pulling the covers over her head. She stayed there for some time. Eventually when it became too stuffy to maintain her hiding place any longer, she slowly lifted her head out, took a slow, deep breath. The porthole was lying on the floor where she had dropped it. Now it was just a thing of metal and glass. Anne stared at it, relieved but not quite trusting it enough to take her eyes off it. After working up enough courage to get out of bed, she first poked the porthole with a pencil, and then when it failed to react to being poked, she picked it up. The sea was gone. All she saw when she looked through the glass were her feet. She put the porthole back in the windowsill and went back to bed. And just as she was about to drift off again, the room lit up. It was a sudden flare of light and it made her sit up quickly. There was another flash and she realized it was coming from the porthole. Once again she picked it up and looked through. The sea was back but it was changed. Instead of calm waves the water was churning and tilting signally. Above the water was a mess of black and grey from which huge flashes of lightning streaked. As Anne watched the storm in amazement, she heard a knocking noise. She turned, expecting her door to open and her mother or father to appear, but it remained closed. Again, there was a knocking. Looking down, Anne realised that the noise was coming from the portal. Slowly, she turned it over. Now Anne was looking at the inside of the sailboat. It was completely filled with water. She saw a cup and a map float past. Then she saw seaweed. But that didn't make any sense. Why would seaweed be inside the boat? It was just as Anne realized the seaweed was in fact hair. And that the face appeared at the porthole. It was a girl. Not much older than Anne. Her cheeks were bulging and her eyes were wide and bloodshot. Desperately she raised her hand and hit it against a porthole. Anne was frozen. Part of her was screaming to drop the porthole to run to her parents but she couldn't. Anne felt tears rolling down her cheeks as she watched the girl in the boat open her mouth in a silent scream of bubbles and then claw and claw at the porthole breaking her nails against the glass. And then it was over. The girl stopped thrashing and became quite still. Now Anne could move. Now she could scream and scream and scream. She was sensible enough to tell her parents that it had been a nightmare. She knew they would never believe her. The next day, at her insistence, Anne's mother took the porthole to work after promising to throw it in the canal, the ram behind her office. Anne's mother Harrow decided to keep it. It was such a pretty thing, and it would make a lovely paperweight. There was no need to tell Anne. She put the porthole in the glove compartment of her car, and left. As her mother drove, she made a mental note to take the car to the garage that night on the way home from work. It had started to make the most annoying knocking noise. A lesson for us all there. Some souvenirs are better left in situ. Now the time has come to retire and enjoy a cool night's rest. I hope wherever you are, in time and space. Let you sleep well and peacefully. Please come back rested and refreshed and join us once again for another tale from Dr. Longshadow's Miscellany of the Uncanny.